So of this man, Nicodemus, uh, we can conjecture, but we don't know very much. But we do know that he was a Pharisee. We do know that he was a man whose job it was to interpret, or who's, who was part of a group of people who were about interpreting, interpreting the law and making sure that people understood absolutely what it meant to follow God and to follow faithfully in terms of the law. And so he was a man who had clout. He was a man who had knowledge. He was a man who believed that he was part of a group who had the responsibility of taking God's ancient word and making it relevant to today. Here was a man who felt with his fellow Pharisees, they had a, a spiritual, a, a theological a responsibility for leading the people. Now, in our modern secular society, uh, I wonder who and where he would have been. I, I wonder, you know, whether he would have been uh, a politician, a high-up influential politician who felt he had a responsibility to govern well. Or I wonder whether he would have been like a significant media pundit, you know, a, a, a David Dimbleby or something like that. Or Jonathan Dimbleby. I get them mixed up. Who's the one that does question time? David. Yes, thank you. So somebody who's in the know, who's well-connected, and who is senior in an organization that exists to tell the ordinary people the way it is. Because that's how the media works now, right? The media tells people the way it is. They interpret the politicians and the debates about Brexit and the votes and the delays and all the rest of it, and then they distill it down and they tell us what to think and what to believe. And so there's always that interpretative editorial layer between what's actually going on in the world and what we get to know about it. And so maybe Nicodemus in our day would have been a senior media figure. What's absolutely sure is that Nicodemus in our society would have been somebody uh, who was uh, important and significant. Now, we're told that he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So, I suppose you could argue that he would have been a, like a, you know, a high court judge or a, you know, someone in, important in the judiciary. But actually, the Pharisees had much more popular connection than that, more uh, recognizable. When all said and done, here was a man who knew where things were at. And, and we're in a society where uh, often we find out, well, I suppose it's the same in, in every age and generation. We're at the mercy of the people who tell us they know. They know. They know what's what, and, and they know the way things are going to be, and, and that's how they make a living, and that's how they get a name, and that's how they have their, their, their reputation until perhaps they, they fall from grace or they're supplanted by somebody else. And so this man is a man of clout and influence and importance. But this is a man who, as we've observed along the way, came to Jesus at night. And I think both Veronica and John are right. He had courage because he dared to come and get up close and personal with this Jesus 
who maybe already, there's no evidence from what John says that he was ruffling any feathers yet, but maybe there were a few people who were beginning to look a little askance at this jumped-up wannabe rabbi from Galilee who had no authority in the Pharisees' eyes. And so, you know, a little bit controversial. Jesus already a little bit controversial. Anyone who can create or who can, who can turn, you know, 120 gallons of water, or was it liters? Liters. Uh, 120 liters of water into, no, it was gallons, sorry, uh, into wine, that reputation spreads out. People hear about things like that. And so he had courage to come at night. He had courage to come at all, but he was perhaps fearful of his contemporaries. He was hedging his bets. He was having, I suppose, you know, what, uh, you know, media pundits or, or journalists or important people, you know, maybe having that kind of, that coffee meeting. So, you're just sizing somebody up maybe before you invite them on to be a panel guest in your show. You kind of, you know, you've sent your researcher to do a little bit of the research, and now you're having the kind of pre-conversation to see whether or not this is somebody that your reputation would be in tatters over if you allowed them onto your show or uh, you took things any further. So, this is the sounding out interview. Who is this person? And indeed, he already thinks he knows, or he seems to think he knows. He says, Rabbi, we know. Do they? Or was he just schmoozing him? You know, was he just uh, giving him the spiel just to kind of soften Jesus up and, and find a, a positive, flattering way in? Rabbi, even calling him Rabbi, was a, a recognition in and of itself. By whose authority was he a rabbi? We know that you're a teacher who has come from God. Who's the we? Have they got together and reached that decision? Have they had a little chat amongst them, you know, in the kind of Pharisee common room and decided that Jesus is indeed a teacher who's come from God? Or is this just the royal we? Is this just an I know or I believe or I wonder if? You're a teacher who has come from God. And right there, Nicodemus betrays his biggest vulnerability. Two words, we know. How do you know? <laughs> How do you know anything about Jesus, Nicodemus? What do you know about Jesus? What do you know about who he is? What do you know about why he's come? What do you know about his mission? What do you know about his teaching? What do you know about his authority? What do you know about his origins? What do you know about his birth? Do you know about shepherds and wise men? <laughs> do you know about the trip to Bethlehem? Do you know about the angel Gabriel? What do you know? We know that you're a teacher who has come from God. Well, you got that wrong. Not just a teacher. Not just a teacher. But one who has indeed come 
from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with them. Well, true that. And so here is Nicodemus, a man who's courageous and bold, a man who's fearful and anxious, a man who's hedging his bets, a man who's of high status and importance, a man who knows what he knows and what he teaches other people. And so if if we were playing Nicodemus, I think we would have to find a way. I think you'd have to be quite a skilled and accomplished actor to pitch Nicodemus in a way that pulled all that together. The, the, The confidence of position and status with the sincerity of someone who's curious to know more. With the hesitancy of someone who doesn't want to get too far in and comes at night in case they've got this wrong. With the sense of presence and assurance to say we know who you are or who we think you are. And to hold all of those in tension. And there's a beautiful kindness and there's an utter ruthlessness in how Jesus deals with Nicodemus. And it's the same beautiful kindness and utter ruthlessness that Jesus applies to every single one of us at some point in our lives and along the way. Because this man purports to know and judge and understand and have an idea of what's from God and what's from not, what's not from God. And Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, that phrase has come become for us so hackneyed, or so overused, I should say, that we barely hear it. We barely hear it. It's a term that's become so loaded for us now with uh, evangelistic Christian conversion. You must be born again. And it's very difficult for us to hear and understand how Nicodemus would have heard it, because it's a phrase that actually contains two, uh, two things, one of which is an impossibility and the other of which is uh, a humiliation, if you like. The impossibility, of course, is the thing that Nicodemus reacts to. Pah! You can't be born again? How can you crawl back inside your mother's womb and be born again? That's just nonsense. And so Jesus immediately puts him on the back foot. And he gives him an answer which he, wise, accomplished, knowledgeable as he is, doesn't even understand. And so on the one hand, he presents him with an impossibility which confounds him and throws him off. And on the other hand, he gets to the nub of the matter straight away with Nicodemus. 
And even that nub of the matter falls into two things, in fact. One is that he tells Nicodemus in no uncertain terms, you've kind of got to start all over again, Nicodemus. (laughs) Back to the beginning. Down the biggest snake on the board, (laughs) all the way back. Because whatever it is you think you know, whatever it is you think you've got, whatever it is you think you understand about God and His kingdom and the way He works, uh -uh. and at the same time, He tells Nicodemus that actually the place and the status and the position that God requires Nicodemus and you and me and all of us to be in is as babes in arms. I have stilled my soul like a well-fed child, the psalmist writes. In the imagery all through the New Testament, indeed all through the Gospels, is the imagery of the vulnerable and the helpless. It's That picture again of a little child who Jesus set amongst them and said, except you be like a little child. And Nicodemus takes this big grown-up Pharisee with his fancy clothes and his fine hat and his wisdom and the age, no doubt, showing upon his face. And he tells him, you've got to go back to the beginning. You've got to start all over again. Everything you thought you knew, it's not the way it works. How can someone be born when they are old? And yet that's the miracle and the mystery of God's grace and God's dealings. C.S. Lewis was raised as Uh, a Christian in the Church of Ireland, and reluctantly came to the conclusion that God did not exist when he was about 15 years old. And many years later on, by now an academic in Magdalen College in Oxford, he, uh, after conversations with Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, began to think again or wrestle afresh. And I wonder if I could get you just to put the key to the five-pass position. just helps people not to be confused. And he said this, You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen College, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. C.S. Lewis A man with all his academic brilliance, a stellar mind, 
a man of penetrating intellect and understanding, discovering himself for all his intellectual prowess and confidence and certainty, undone by the approach of Jesus to the point where he admitted that God was God and, of course, records his uh, coming to faith in books like Mere Christianity and Surprised by Joy. Jesus meets Nicodemus and takes him from his place of position and importance and tells him that he needs to be a child again. Tells him that he needs to be in the place not of the one who knows and has the answers, the interpreter for God and the interpreter of God, but actually the one who is vulnerable to the greatness and the mystery and the wonder that is God. You see, it's why you don't need to worry if you're not a great intellect. Because the way to God, as important as intellect is, and as important a part as it played in C.S. Lewis, perhaps alone in the Christian church, is, is testimony to that. He's a man who didn't subsequently put his intellect or his understanding on a hook and never use it again, but instead used his great mind but made it subject to this mysterious, overwhelming grace of God who'd broken in on his life and spent his uh, days, his time, his life, seeking to capture, seeking to, to get his, his considerable head and intellect around this thing that had happened to his heart and his life that had just seized him. Nicodemus was an accomplished man. He was a man who had reached the giddy heights in that society of being one of its leaders. It's a theocratic society, a society ruled and governed by the law of God. So, to be a Pharisee and an interpreter of the law give you considerable authority. And Jesus comes along and says, you know nothing. <laughs> but He doesn't leave him there. He presents him with these mysteries and Nicodemus, for all his great understanding, can't compute or get his head round these strange words that Jesus speaks. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water, so a natural birth, and born of the Spirit. And so nobody can enter the kingdom of God unless they have both the experience of being born physically and the experience, and it may be it's a slow, steady process from when you're a child, or it may be it's an overwhelming moment of conversion that comes upon you at some point in your life, but where spiritually you come alive to God and you know that this world and all it has to offer is not it and is not all. The Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. And then he, he picks 
Another picture, an analogy from nature. Do you know that the wind blows wherever it pleases? Now, who can control the wind? Who can control where it's going from? Who can even know where it's coming from? Even the Met Office gets it wrong, right? We cannot control the wind. We're learning to harness its power to some extent and draw power from it, but we cannot control it. And if it doesn't blow, well, we can't make it blow. And if it blows too hard, well, we can't stop it. And if it suddenly changes direction, well, there's nothing much that you can do. My two daughters were out in Australia uh, a year or so ago, and they were on a camping trip with a husband and a boyfriend soon to become fiancé. And they were out somewhere in the middle of nowhere on this camping trip, and uh, they, they looked up and they saw this massive storm coming. <laughs> it's just this wall of, you know, dark cloud that was, that was blowing in. And, and, and as it came nearer, I mean, they were on a campsite under canvas and lots of other people were, and then the storm hit. Huge howling gale. They were People's tents were being ripped out. They just managed to, to kind of keep theirs. They, they, they put some extra guy, uh, pegs in and so on. And they just managed to kind of stay within the shelter. But then these massive golf ball-sized ice uh, hailstones were, were falling all around them. And it was, I mean, it was spectacular, but extremely frightening. You know, there were cars getting dented round about and so on. And it didn't last all that long. And then it just kind of blew over. And so they kind of shook themselves off and went out to, you know, survey what the rest of the campsite looked like. And and they they looked around and they saw the storm clouds retreating. And then as they watched, they saw it got so far and then it just turned around and it came back again. So it came back for a second pass, and so all of again the high winds and the the, the, the hailstones and, and and the drama for round two, and then it blew over again, and it went over that way, and then they watched, and then it did round three, three times, the same heavy storm, just flew uh, blew right over them. They were absolutely powerless, and that is the position that Jesus invites Nicodemus. To believe is a proper and appropriate way to understand God. We can't pin him down. We can't tell him what to do. He's not a genie in a bottle. He's not a good luck charm for when we're in need or in crisis. He's not simply there to make our lives cushy and easy and comfortable. He's mysterious, and he is the one who invites us to be like little children, and indeed invited Nicodemus to the place of utmost vulnerability from his place of absolute certainty. And as Jesus presents him with all of this imagery, water birth and spirit birth, what does that even mean if you haven't experienced it? The wind that blows, the uncertainty, the vulnerability, the submission. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. He's confused. He's undone. His certainties have evaporated. He's no longer the one. 
coming to test Jesus on the quiet. He's no longer the one with the confidence of position or status or power, but he's someone who can't get his head around what Jesus is talking about. And Jesus teases him, you're Israel's teacher. Hmm. And you don't understand these things. No, you don't understand these things, Nicodemus. Because God is not to be worked out or understood. I spent three years at New College doing my theology degree Three years in a faculty that is devoted to people trying to understand and pin down God, professors and senior lecturers and experts and theologians and people with names and books and theses and PhDs, all trying to understand and pin down God. And God is unpindownable. God instead invites us into the mystery of His invitation. An invitation that came to Mary, a girl who may have been as young as 12 or 13, who heard and received the word of an angel, telling her that she would become mother to the Son of God, that there would be a birth of water, but in her case, preceded by an overshadowing by the Spirit of water and the Spirit. And Mary heard and received the word, the word that was spoken to her. And because the word was spoken to her, and she believed it and received it, for her, in a very unique way, it was enfleshed within her. A word, the word, the word of God came to her, and she believed it. And because she believed it and received it, a child formed in her womb. The word was made flesh. And Nicodemus' invitation, and yours and mine always as well, is that we will not get our heads round God, but He invites us to believe what He has said and as we believe it and receive it, we will not bear Jesus in the way that uniquely Mary did, but we will enflesh the Word of God. Because it's as we believe what God has said that our lives are changed, right? It's as we recognize that we cannot understand or master, rule, or control our world or this world or anything in it, but by faith, we can make ourselves vulnerable to the truth and the promises that God has given us, and we will be changed, and we will exercise change in the lives of other people for good and for God, for grace and for healing and for salvation, and it's a mystery. I, to this day, do not understand how kneeling down and asking Jesus to come into my life when I was 15 could have made such a seismic difference to my life, but it has. I believed the gospel of salvation. I believed. And God asked me to do a simple, ridiculous thing, which was to take Him at His word and see what He would do in me and through me. And so Nicodemus' invitation Jesus 
ruthless kindness to him was to unmake a man who thought he was made, who thought he had it all, or who thought he could have a grasp and an understanding and a, even a, a control, a handle on God himself. And Jesus, in his merciful kindness, told Nicodemus that in terms of the kingdom of God, he didn't and couldn't know anything with this until first he had made his heart and life subject to the mystery of the blowing wind of the Spirit, allowed himself to be changed and brought back to the place of childlike dependence on the living God who's looking for his children. I never tire of saying that. He's looking for his children, not for his grown-ups. In terms of Advent, this is Bible Sunday. This is the day in Advent when the church focuses on the Word of God. But the Word of God, as much as it's contained within the book we call the Bible and the Scriptures and so on, the, the real Word of God, we're told, is, is living and active. It's dynamic. So that you can read the same passage, and yet every time you read it, the Spirit shines the light in a different way and a different facet and a different focus and a different verse and a different insight and a different understanding. And that's not to say the Bible just means what you feel like it meaning. Far from it. But it's a living word. It's a dynamic word. It's a word that blows through your life. And there'll be times and seasons when you will look at a passage in God's Word, and it will represent manna from heaven because it heals and reassures you. Or it will be a terrifying call and a challenge to you to some new avenue or chapter of service or mission or ministry. Or because it will tell you something or reassure you in the midst of uncertainty, God's Word is living but for it to live in you and me, of course, we have to engage with it. Nicodemus, of course, had engaged long and hard with the Scriptures. He was a Pharisee after all. And yet, despite his understanding and his engagement with the Scriptures, until and unless he would make himself vulnerable to the Spirit of God, to recognizing in Jesus the Son of Man and seeing the Son of God, then he would not begin to make sense or understand the Scriptures that were pointing to him. And so as we draw near to Christmas and as we draw near once again to the celebration of the Word made flesh and dwelling amongst us, Remember that as fixed as the traditions of Christmas might be in our lives and in the actions of the next two or three weeks, the Word of God is not fixed in tradition. And God who blows by His Spirit 
is wanting to say new things to you, is wanting to take His ancient Word and speak it alive and afresh to you. But you have to put yourself in the place where you can hear that and know that. You have to put, we have to put ourselves in the place where God gets the chance to speak to us. And we have to come to it as Nicodemus did, not thinking that we know all the answers, but come to it as Nicodemus had to learn to do. And there's good evidence that he and Joseph of Arimathea were still there together at the end, that he learned what it meant to be born of the Spirit, and he learned what it meant to recognize the blowing of the wind and the mysterious ways in which God works. So that even though this Jesus went all the way to a cross, it was simply the fulfillment of Jesus being lifted up. Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness because it was a means and a sign of healing. And so the Son of Man must be lifted up, the dangerous cross becoming the means of healing so that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Your faith does not rest in what you know or understand. It does not rest in what you've already experienced of God. Your relationship with God rests in the vulnerability, in the simplicity, in trusting in the mystery of God who knows your name and who wants to deal in and through your life, and who just needs you to trust Him, not to take Him for granted, but to come with an open heart and the innocence of a child that says, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Let's pray together.